What's it? We're going uh, studying the book of uh, Micah. You should be there, page 728, if you're using one of our pew Bibles. And Micah is really the last of the 8th century prophets in our study of the minor prophets. And if you've been reading along in our series, like I really hope you do so that when you show up on Sundays, you have some categories that I can hang hats on as we talk about it, because we can't read the entire book. And so like this morning, I'm going to be reading portions of it, but I'm hoping you've spent at least a one-time read through. It takes 20 minutes uh, so that you, there's some sense of what's going on. Um, and then after, really after the fact, after I preach it, it's probably a good idea to read it again because that helps you put the pieces together. But if you've been doing that and being that Micah is the last eight century prophets, that might explain a sense of redundancy you've heard in the prophets we've read so far. And, and that's because Micah is a contemporary of Hosea and a contemporary of Amos and perhaps even Joel. And Micah is a contemporary of Isaiah, but Isaiah is a major prophet. But the point is, these men all lived in roughly the same times. They, they saw the same sins, they grieved the same realities, they, they proclaimed the same message of hope from the same God, and so it stands to reason that some of the themes are going to be the same. Now that doesn't mean once you've read one of them, it's as good as reading all of them, because each of them do bring a unique element or perspective. If you recall Hosea, Hosea, uh, help us understand that our sin is not some abstract thing that we commit against some kind of abstract force or law code, but our sin is a personal thing to God. It hurts him, it grieves him, it breaks his heart. And to illustrate that, God used the, the, the adulterous relationship of Hosea and asked him to marry Gomer, who would be unfaithful to him, breaking his heart so that it would be an illustration to the people of Israel what sin does to him, that he's not aloof from it, that it actually hurts him that way. Amos, by contrast, did not picture God as a grieving husband. Amos pictured God as a lion that roars against evil and injustice. And so Hosea pictured God as a, a grieving husband with a broken heart. Amos pictures God as a, lore, a roaring lion. Joel pictured God, which I think is very helpful, as a God who is quick to forgive, a God who is quick to turn away his judgment. That's really important because if we recognize that, man, God is personally hurt for my rebellion, that God roars against evil, the, the evil that I'm a part of as well, like a lion, you wouldn't want to go to that kind of God. You would be afraid of him. But Joel reminds us that though he is a brokenhearted husband, though he's a lion that roars, he is quick to forgive and turn away any judgment. Now, Micah makes a very unique contribution to this prophetic, prophetic testimony because Micah kind of carries on the same kinds of themes of idolatry and sin, but he begins to put in clear focus God's unique answer to our problems. It's the Messiah and shows his unique role in redemptive history. Now, because of all those dynamics, Micah can be hard to follow. If you've read it, you know what I'm talking about because there are passages that alternate between doom and glory and destruction and salvation, and it's a little hard to see how they relate to one another. Now, like we talked about in the introduction of our whole series, part of that is the nature of Hebrew literature and, and, and poetry, but I also think it's, it's intentional on Micah's part to mix the doom and the destruction, the glory and salvation and, and all of that together 
So that we get a real, when it comes to a picture of that, when it comes to God and his people, there's always going to be hope even in the midst of catastrophe. And that's something really important to kind of hold on to. So to navigate our way through this prophet's writings, we're going to look at them in three ways. Number one, we're going to look at the the doom and despair that our sin causes, not just to us personally, but societally, to, to our culture, the doom and despair. Then we're going to look at the glory and grace that's woven all through this book. And then we're going to ask a question, how do we stop the one and guarantee the other, okay? So that's the way we're gonna look at it. And because of that, we're gonna be kind of looking at it thematically. So we're gonna jump all over the book, so be prepared to turn pages a lot. The doom and despair, the grace and the glory, and then how do we stop the one and guarantee the other? So that's how we're gonna look at Micah this morning. Let me push this. Okay, doom and despair. So to find out how bad it was in Micah's day, let's look at Micah's own words. Go to Micah chapter seven. We're gonna start by the very, looking at the very end of his prophecy. And I just wanna read verses one through six. And this is, like I said, we're just gonna read excerpts here and there. This will give you a glimpse of how bad it was. Micah writes, verse one, chapter seven. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered. As when the grapes have been gleaned, there is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. So Micah's writing to a largely agrarian society, so they would have known what this means. This is the end of the summer harvest when everything's been taken, everything's, there's every, all the fruit, the grapes, they've been gleaned, there's nothing left to take. It's totally, we would say desolate because there's nothing there, but this is what the, after the last harvest looks like. There's nothing there. Verse two. The godly has perished from the earth. It's, it's, that, it's, like, it's like that. There's none of them here. And there's no one upright among mankind. They all lie and wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge, the leaders, they ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul, and thus they weave it together. Verse four, the best of them, the best of them is like a briar. It's like an old uh, tumbleweed, right? The best of them is like that. And the most upright of them, a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman, of your punishment has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Verse five, put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. So you don't even talk to your wife. For the sons treat the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against the mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. What a, what a sorry state it is, isn't it, that, that Micah's describing. A society that has been so broken down, so much so that even the members of your own home potentially could be your enemies. Now, thankfully, this isn't true for most families in most times, but there are enough examples in our recent history to tell us society can be so twisted by its idolatry, so twisted by its own wickedness, that even the most loving and secure relationships can unravel. Children outing their parents to the SS in Berlin in the 1940s. Parents outing their children to the Communist Party of Chairman Mao's Cultural Revolution in the 1960s, sons stealing food from their mothers in the labor camps of North Korea today, from Berlin to Beijing, from Pyongyang to ancient Palestine, human beings have just mastered the art of caring for themselves more than they care for others or for the Lord. 
When we read Micah, we might be tempted to ask the question, well, well, how did it get this way? How did things get this bad? That you don't speak around your family. You don't even talk to your wife and you're afraid of your kids. Now, we could ask that question, but if you've been in our series, you already know, right? We, we know how it gets this way. We, Hosea told us, Amos told us, Joel told us. It's the same trajectory. Whenever a society, whenever individuals, whenever a people replace the one true God with the idols of this world, it always leads to sin and human ruination. When we worship the things of this world, it's different somewhat in, 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 in form, but in function identical to what was going on in Micah's day. When we worship comfort, when we worship money, when we worship power, injustice, corruption, perversion, inevitably ensue. When we think of idols, right, we, we, you, you, you're well taught enough to know that we're not talking about just objects on a platform. In our day and age, our idols are much more abstract, but they're idols nonetheless. They control, they exert power over our lives. When we worship people's acceptance, popularity, achievement, power, relationships, sex, whatever it might be, approval. And whenever those things become the ultimate thing, we become undone. Because those things can't carry the weight of, of our lives. They were never intended to. And so as a result, we want more and more from them to deliver on the promises they make to us, but they can give us less and less. And so this is vicious feedback cycle of des- desperation in people's lives. And this isn't just my observation. This is the observation of many in our culture. One man in particular, he was a, a famed American novelist, David Foster Wallace, Time Magazine, says so he's probably one of the most uh, literary, one of the most literary geniuses of the last 100 years. Um, This is his commencement speech to the graduating class in Kenyon College in New York in 2005. Listen to what he says uh, about idolatry, really. And by the way, Wallace is not a Christian. If you've ever read any of his books, you know he's just kind of a cultural critic. He's not a Christian. This is what he says. Here's here's something else that's true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, There's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing like Jesus Christ or Krishna or Allah, he says, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You will never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power. You will feel weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to keep that fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, like a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on and so forth. Look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful. It's that they are unconscious. They are our default settings. And here's the most brilliant thing I think Wallace makes, the most brilliant observation he implies, but he doesn't tease it out in this speech, 
is that if you are not consciously, deliberately, intentionally making the Lord your God, you will unconsciously make God of everything else. He just says it right here. He says these things, what's, what's insidious about them is they're not inherently evil or wrong. They're unconscious. And so they're the default settings of humanity. And so it was in Micah's time. They weren't deliberately, consciously making the Lord their God, not in their hearts at least. They kept all the external trappings, and we'll see a little bit of that. But because God was not consciously their God, everything else became God in its place. Money, power, success. And we're going to take a look, a look at that right now. Look at uh, Micah chapter 2. Look at some of the economic injustices of the people. Micah chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. Micah writes this, woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. In other words, they stay up late at night and they're plotting out how to do wrong things. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand to do so. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. So they plot ways that they can undermine maybe their business par partners increase the interest they charge, somehow fudge with the numbers, and they're going to do it because they can and they will. Chapter 6, verse 10, we see a little bit more of that economic wickedness. The Lord says, can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales? What does he mean by wicked scales? Well, he tells us, and with a bag of deceitful weights. In other words, in those times, their transactions were done by scales. Here's, this is how much this is going to cost. And so you'd put the gold and you'd have weights, but they would have deceitful weights, kind of like loaded dice maybe. They would deceive the people they were working with. In verse 12, your rich men are full of violence and your inhabitants speak lies and their tongue is deceitful in their mouths. So we see that economically, they were robbing each other, they were dishonest, all the, to get ahead, make a buck. Fudge the numbers here and there, don't claim certain things on their taxes, you name it. The point is, money became more powerful, more real than honoring the Lord. But it wasn't just with their money that they were corrupt, it was their politics, it was their civil living together, it was even their religion. Look at chapter three, verses one through three. Micah says, and I said, hear you heads of Jacob and you rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin off from my people and their flesh from their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off of them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. So he's not saying that the people of God at this point resorted to cannibalism, although it's a very graphic metaphor that broadcasts the more important point. The way you treat each other, the way you devour one another, it's like cannibalism. The way you have no regard for the humanity of one another. Look down at verse 5. But it's not just these business people. It's even their spiritual leaders, the prophets. Verse 5, chapter 3, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. I've used the expression, these are just prophets for profit. You give them what they want, and they'll give you what you want. But you treat them badly, and they'll curse you. 
These were not real prophets from God. They were motivated by their own interests and selfish desires. Look at verse 9 of the same chapter. Hear this. Notice the repetition of the verb hear constantly. Hear. Are you listening? Are you paying attention? You heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, you who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity, its heads give judgment for a bribe, its priests teach for a price, its prophets practice divination for money, yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. And what they mean by the Lord being in the midst of us, hey, we got the temple, we got all the trappings of religion, we're good. And their hearts were far from the Lord. Hear, people, hear. Are you listening? Are you paying attention? By this time, it should be clear, God has been giving this message. He wants his people to pay attention for years and years, and they've kept ignoring him. Friends, are you hearing the word of the Lord? Are you hearing? Are you listening? Do you think the external trappings of religion are sufficient if your heart is not with him? If you're not consciously making him the Lord, your God, you are unconsciously making other gods in your life for sure. That's the message of Micah here. And so what is God's response to this? Let's see, chapter one of Micah. What is God's response to this economic injustice, to this spiritual harlotry, to this corruption in all of society? What's his response? Here it is, Micah chapter one, verse two. Hear, you people, all of you, pay attention. O earth and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth, and the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. Verse 5, all this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel." Look at verse 16. After verse 5, there's this, it's listing of, of a location and place and its judgment on and on and on again. But look at the conclusion in verse 16. Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair, sign of grief for the children of your delight. So grieve for your children. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle. Grieve. Why? Because they will go from you into exile. God's judgment would come upon them. And finally, chapter 6, verse 13 to 15. This is, if, by the way, if you're paying attention, on the heels of God talking about these accursed business practices, chapter th- or verse 13 picks it up. Therefore, I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. And here we have in verse 14, David Foster Wallace's own insight coming to pass that these things that we worship other than God will eat you alive. Look at what he says in verse 14. You will eat, but you will not be satisfied and there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away, you try and save, but not preserve, and what you preserve, I'll give to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. So we see here in Micah that the doom and despair is apparent, and it is understandable, isn't it? But what is also readily apparent in Micah, yet not understandable, is our second point, And that is the glory and grace woven all through this book. So in the midst of all that we've heard, let me just read a few more passages so you can kind of get a sense of 
the, the confusion almost of, of what's being woven in between. So look at the glory and grace. Look at chapter two, verse 12. Right after we read chapter one, verse 16, where in judgment God sends them the exile, now in mercy, look what he says in chapter two, verse 12. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel and I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it, their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. What a contrast to everything else that's in chapter two and right in chapter three. But look at chapter four. We're just gonna look at two more passages. Chapter four, verses one through four, this amazing passage. It shall come to pass in the later days, latter days, that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains you recall in chapter one, God says, I'm gonna flatten it. I'm gonna wipe everything out. Now it's the highest of all the mountains and it shall be lifted up above the hills and the people shall flow to it and many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he will judge between many peoples and shall decide for strong nations afar off. We learned about that in Obadiah. And they shall beat their swords in the plowshares and their spears in the pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. That's a very obvious reference here. There's not gonna be need for weapons. No one's gonna go to war anymore. And the next analogy, again, it's an agricultural analogy of a vine and a fig. And a vine takes a while to grow and to extend itself. So the picture we're gonna read next that Micah's painting is that there's gonna be so much peace and prosperity that we'll be living sedentary lives. Kicking back is the idea here. Look at it in verse four. But they shall sit, every man, every woman, under their vine and under their fig tree and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. So I know for us, sitting under a vine and a fig tree is kind of like, well, that's a bit odd, but what that meant to them was a sedentary life of safety, and you're not gonna be afraid anymore. Prosperity and peace, a beautiful picture. And finally, to conclude the book here, Matthew or Micah 7, chapter seven, verse 18. Adam read this in our, our worship set. Our music set, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you've sworn to our fathers from the days of old. You can see how reading Micah can be a bit hard to follow, right? With all this doom and despair, there's woven into it glory and grace all through the book. So the next logical question we would be asking is then, well, then what stopped the one and what guarantees the other that we're seeing here? In other words, how do we get from here to there, right? How, how does this transition happen? And if you're familiar with Micah, you might be tempted to go to probably one of the most well-known verses in Micah, which is Micah chapter six, verse eight. 
He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Well, this is good. It's certainly better than how the people of God have been living up to this point, but here's the problem. There's a big problem if we stop here, and that is this. If the takeaway from reading Micah is that we, we just simply need to exercise justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with God, whatever that might mean, that sounds good, but there's a problem with that. If we stop there, that would make a very good Jewish sermon to preach at any good Jewish synagogue, right? Or that might make an acceptable evangelical moralistic sermon. That's what God wants. Be good, exercise justice, and be humble. But that's not the gospel. That is not what Christianity teaches. Christianity does not teach us necessarily the virtues of righteousness and goodness and kindness. Christianity teaches us about something far better than that. My point is, if we simply stop at being better, then God's wonderful portrait of this glorious future that we experience by his grace is really a portrait without a person in the middle of it. In other words, friends, think about it. If God's answer to the sin in human society is to just get the humans in that society to be better, then how is his glory and grace revealed if we're doing all the work, right? In other words, if God's solution to sin is just get us to be better, then how is grace revealed? Because we're the ones doing all the moral reform. Furthermore, how can we have absolute confidence? What true assurance could we have of all of God's promises for a perfect future if the hope of that is rooted squarely on our imperfect shoulders? You see, the problem, Micah 6.8, whatever Micah 6.8 might mean about how our conduct ought to be because we're in a covenant relationship with God, what it cannot mean is that, how that, is that, that conduct is how the covenant is assured. In other words, we exercise justice, we love kindness, we walk humbly with God because we're in covenant relationship with Him. We don't do those things to assure the covenant. Does that make sense? And so we cannot say, how do we get from doom and despair to glory and grace? Well, we work harder. That's the answer. That is not the gospel. And that is not what Micah teaches us either. So we need to go one last section of Micah to see the pivotal difference, and that's in chapter 5, starting in verse 2. This is yet again another famous passage from Micah. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from of old and ancient of days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Verse 4, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Friends, what stops one and guarantees the other? We see it right here. 
Micah provides words about this coming Messiah. They do, and he reveals three things about this Messiah which should turn us away from the worship of any idol and cause us to want to trust in Christ and God alone. Number one, and they're all here in Micah 5, the first thing is this, God delights to magnify his greatness. Did you notice the contrast between the littleness of Bethlehem and the greatness of this ruler that's going to come from Bethlehem? Friends, Bethlehem was this tiny little village. It barely could be considered a clan of Judah. Why would God use this little village to bring this future king? Now, I know we have a lot of Bible students here, so you already know. You're like, well, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 17, the Messiah has to be in the lineage of David, and David is from Bethlehem. That's right. But that misses the point of verse 2, doesn't it? Notice in verse 2, Micah's not contrasting the royal lineage of Bethlehem. He's contrasting the littleness of Bethlehem. So while it's true that the Messiah has to come from David and David is from Bethlehem, that's not the point being made here. In keeping with the way God works, he always chooses the small, the quiet, the unexpected, and does the big, world-changing, and radical. Had he chose Bethlehem because Bethlehem was some kind of great city, people would have said, well, of of course the Messiah comes from Bethlehem. I mean, it's Bethlehem after all. Oh, that makes a perfect sense that this ruler would come from such an esteemed city. And Bethlehem shares the glory because they're all that in a bag of chips. See, when God sent his son, he didn't send him to the Marriott. He wasn't born in a Marriott. He wasn't born in a Hilton. I know they didn't have those there, but you know what I'm getting at, right? They, they weren't born there because of the great accommodation so the manager could boast. Well, that's why he chose our chain. We've got free Wi-Fi, great breakfast, beautiful views. Of course, he would come here. No, he went to a manger. No fanfare. Nothing to boast of those things. When God wanted to defeat Goliath, he didn't send Saul. Saul wouldn't have gone even if God told him to go. He didn't send another strong, strapping Hebrew man. He sent little David, right, probably 16, 17 years old, with a slingshot, a slingshot. Now, obviously, it was a sling. It was a weapon indeed. But we have to ask, why does God use shepherd boys and slingshots and podunk know-nothing villages when he has so many other things to choose from? Well, God's pattern is he's not beholding to you or I nor is he limited by our resources. In fact, it's often in spite of, not because of human agency, that he is going to do a work so that everyone knows it is him doing the work, not us. David said it best, actually when he was confronting Goliath on the fields there, he said, then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. By the way, Goliath had all the, the weaponry of modern technology at the time. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied this day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand. Why? Notice the purpose clause. That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle belongs to the Lord, and he will give you into our hand. God wants to magnify his greatness so we're wrapped up in our worship of him, so we're not so amazed by ourselves, our achievements, our purposes, our grandeur, our glory, but him and him alone. 
Because as David Foster Wallace says, worshiping him is the only thing that will give you, well, worshiping, let me, he didn't say that. As David Wallace said, worshiping anything else will eat you alive. But God is the only thing when you worship him with your life, he gives you life. Go with me to the New Testament for a second here. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter one, I wanna build this pattern out a bit. 1 Corinthians chapter one, Paul is making a similar point and we're gonna build a little bit of a theology here. 1 Corinthians chapter one, verses 27 to 31. This is what Paul writes. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Verse 30, he is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And what he's quoting there is from Jeremiah the prophet in Jeremiah chapter nine. You don't need to turn there, but Jeremiah 9.23 says this. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let the one who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, kindness, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So you see that pattern there. It is the Lord. Finally, Paul kind of pulls us into how it affects our salvation. Paul, um, Romans 3.27, what then becomes of our boasting? It is excluded, ignored, it doesn't apply. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified apart from works of the law. God is wanting to magnify his glory so that he receives the worship, so we worship him and not the things of this world, so we have life. So that's point number one we see in Micah 5. Secondly, God keeps his promises. Do you see that? From of, of old, he says, ancient promises. Any Jew hearing this prophecy would have immediately thought of King David and this ruler that was coming from Bethlehem because God said it would be the case in 2 Samuel 7, 12, and 16. When David wanted to give the Lord a temple, the Lord said, "Uh, uh, uh-uh-uh, I'm gonna build you a house. I will raise up your offspring after you, he said, who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Friends, Micah, in Micah 5, he doesn't utter these words at the zenith of Israel's power, might, and faithfulness toward God, but when everything was falling apart. He utters this promise to reassure the people of the certainty of God's promises, that neither time nor circumstances have diminished God's ability or willingness to bless his people and fulfill his word. It wasn't like things were going great and they're saying, all right, now it's time for the Messiah. Everything was falling apart and Micah reminds him of this. You can tell how firmly someone believes God's promises by whether or not they give them strength or hope when all of life caves in. It's easy, isn't it, to believe in the promises of God when things are going well. But you really know somebody banks on the promises of God 
because when everything else is caving in, it is the promise of God that gives them strength and hope. And if that was the case, we clearly saw it in Micah because look at Micah in the midst of all this corruption, what he says in chapter three, verse eight, but as for me, I'm filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Micah knew that God is a promise-making and promise-keeping God. He knew it, and it shaped his life. As a matter of fact, friends, those four words you can use to describe the entirety of the Bible. The whole of the Old Testament, two words, promises made. The whole of the New Testament, promises kept. And we see that from Micah. When things were bad, he held on to the promises of God and they gave him strength and hope. Friends, grow your faith, grow your confidence, grow your comfort in God by knowing his promises, knowing that time or circumstance do not diminish all the promises he says he will bring to pass for his people. That includes all of you. If you have put your faith in Christ, if you are consciously making him your God, those promises are things you can claim. Now, they may not come the way uh, you anticipate, but they'll always be better, even if it takes some time to realize it. Okay, lastly, number one. So God delights to magnify his greatness. God keeps his promises. And third and finally, God protects and cherishes his people. Look at verse four of chapter five. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. I'm gonna go a little long, so I apologize, just bear with me, but this is stuff we gotta unpack. I I love this last bit in verse four because there's such a personalness to this. God is not simply interested in magnifying his greatness and talking about his faithfulness and his promises so that we, we, we stand in awe of him, although that is true. He wants to magnify his greatness, magnify his faithfulness so that we can know that he can shepherd us and we can rest secure that he can do this. He wants us to know his character so we can trust him. So when he says we will dwell in safety and be at peace, we know we can count on him to do it. In other words, God's power is on display so we can trust him with what matters most. Your ambitions, your dreams, your your desires, but more importantly, your disappointments, your failures, your heartache, our very selves. And notice what he says in, in verse four, he will stand. This, this ruler is not a slacker. He's not lying down on the job. He's not waiting for you to serve him. He is vigilant to serve all those who look to him to be cared for. He will stand. And he says, he will shepherd the people of God. Normally that's a noun, but here it's being used as a verb. What does that mean? He will feed you. He will care for you. He will not leave you alone. You don't have to trust in the the gods of this age, power, money, relationships, approval, sex, those things, because he will give you what you need if you are willing to follow his lead. And notice this phrase, and he'll do all this in the strength of the Lord. Friends, Jesus doesn't just merely have good intentions, right? 
He, he has the strength to pull all this off. That's the great thing about the passage before us. It's not just he would like to do this. He can do it because he has omnipotent strength. It's the strength that holds all things together. It's the strength that Paul wrote to the Colossians saying, for by Christ all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. I got to stop putting timers on those things. And are held together by his, and in him, all things are held together. Thanks, Tom. Friends, do you realize Jesus could just simply say, molecules disperse, and that's it. There goes reality. All things hold together. It is an omnipotent strength. If we follow after Christ as our shepherd, there is no power or resource that will not be available to you to be transformed into his image for your eternal joy. And if that wasn't enough, he says finally, and his greatness is to the ends of the earth. Did you see that phrase? Friends, there will be no corner on this planet. There will not be a peace of this universe. There will be no pocket of resistance that could take away these promises to us or threaten our security in him because his greatness extends everywhere. Nothing can threaten us. Friends, why would we, why would we be tempted to worship and follow after the pathetic and puny gods of this age when we have one who is great above all, who keeps his promises, who will protect and cherish you? Who wouldn't want, who wouldn't want majesty, faithfulness, and omnipotent strength to guard over your life, guard over your marriage, to get you through those tough spots, in that tough situation at work with your family? Who wouldn't want omnipotent strength, faithfulness, and majesty to surround you? This is the message of Micah. This is really the message of all the minor prophets. This is what they have been pushing us towards. It was true at the end of the 8th century B.C., and it's true 29 centuries later at the beginning of the 21st. And if God should wait, it will be true for another 10, 15, however long it takes. This is the God we serve. Let's be deliberate and conscious about making him God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the words of Micah, Hosea, Amos, Joel, Obadiah, all these writers of Scripture. Father, and we cry out, we recognize we're, we're so much like them. We so often worship other gods because we're not being deliberate about making you God in our life. Forgive us, Lord. Bring our wayward hearts back to you. Lord, you are majestic and great and faithful, and you desire to protect and to care for us. Why would we ever want to abandon you for the pathetic realities, the pathetic gods of this world? It's foolishness. But yet we are often wooed. And so, Lord, in your mercy and kindness, would you help us to see the beauty, the greatness that is in the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ? And that the shadow glories of this world would be able to be seen for what they are, bankrupt and futile. We thank you for all this in his majestic name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.